Welcome into another edition of the Dana and Victory podcast, available on musketeerreport.com and all of your favorite streaming platforms. I am Rick. Dan is on the line, as is the legend, Brian Snow. The Musketeers took down Marquette 91-88 at the Centos Center on Sunday, thanks to a buzzer-beating fadeaway three-pointer by Adam Kunkel, the Belmont transfer, and we are here to break all of that down. Gentlemen, how are you? The intros get worse and worse. <laughs> Thanks. Well, how would you like those to go, Dan? Well, I mean, if you could just have it recording and, and get through the intro the first time. Look. That would be terrific. But any quibbles. Any producer of a podcast knows hitting record is the hardest part. <laughs> and it's much better that you have someone tell you that 30 seconds into your start or 13 seconds in your start as opposed to 30 minutes. So we've, oh, we've done that. So, right, right. I think this is a win. I mean, you acting like this is not a smooth start for us is kind of shocking to me, but uh, I don't know. I guess that given the, given your radio credentials at this point, I expect a more clean production. Dan, they have producers for me when I do that. I don't have to actually record the thing myself when I do radio. I mean, I, I don't know what we're doing right here. Dan, I thought you would be happier. The Musketeers won a big game. They're playing well. They look pretty good. Do you have any thoughts about, I don't know. I don't hold on, hold on. We need to address something first. Okay, here we go. Of In terms of all-time Xavier moments, Rick, all-time. Yes. On your father's list, where does an Adam <laughs> Kunkel buzz <laughs> Well, I, I would imagine it's, imagine it's probably similar to where Dan's father ranks it, which has got to be pretty high. Uh, yeah, my dad was immediately telling me after the game, like, I think they're going to have to start Kunkel. I, he's he's way better than we expected. I was like, what part of he shoots 40% from three and is going to be a major impact player for them? Did you not think was he was going to be good? I don't like my dad was like downgrading me for saying not giving Adam Kunkel enough praise ahead of time. I think I think it's bigger for your dad for two reasons. One, because he's from Northern Kentucky, okay. which obviously, like if this kid was from Sycamore, that would have been a a bigger but, deal for my dad the, and for but, Snow. But, uh, but let me say one thing about that, Dan. My dad's from Northern Kentucky, which means he doesn't know anything about high school sports or care. He's not a GCL guy. He doesn't know who won the ninth region tournament back when Adam Kunkel was playing. So he had no idea who Adam Kunkel was before this year. How many regions do y'all have? Sixteen. Sweet 16 state tournament. What champion from every region goes. None of that classified BS like you do in your weak-ass states. I mean, the hostility level on this podcast already is just through the roof. You, I, no, you I, started it this way, Dan. Oh, it, look, <laughs> I'm not here to point fingers. I'm not here to cast blame. Yeah, yeah so let's talk about Adam Kunkel. I mean, he had – how many points did that guy have? I'm going to – score here i should was, probably look i should probably start figure that out before i started he was seven of nine from the field and two of four from deep six of six from the line oh that, that makes that makes i'm really happy and he played 17 minutes that is the definition of instant offense and in a game that was really composed of runs back and forth pretty much the entire second half uh, he was obviously the key player and he was the key player before the ball fell into his hands, you know, 20 feet from the basket with two seconds left. Um, I think that he has provided the injection of instant offense that this team has lacked for years. And it is a huge difference maker. Now it's not just him, obviously Nate Johnson shooting the lights out. 
uh, Xavier as a team is shooting uh, is shooting threes at an elite level, at least over the last three games they've played. But of course, it's been a month that they played those three games, so it feels like it's been going on forever. Um, and I, I mean, it just is a it is a completely different team to watch than it has been the first two years of Travis Steele's uh, uh, head coaching era, I guess you could say. It's completely different. It's it's 180 degrees. It's night and day. The team is pinging the ball around on offense. They move the ball. They move without the ball. They play with incredible amount of confidence. They seem like they're not looking over their shoulder every possession, waiting for the coaching staff to call a set play. They play with interlocking pieces that can come in and seem to fit with one another offensively. It is a completely different different team to watch. I mean, it's 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 kind of hard to believe that it's the same team that that it's the same program, it's the same coaching staff, it's a lot of the same players that we've seen the last couple of years. Dang but it's man. not a lot of the same players. The guys dribbling are entirely different, which is the whole point. Well, that's true. I, fair. Dan, you mentioned the uh, not looking over their shoulder and not you know grinding everything to a halt on offense. I think that's an interesting point that we need to give Travis Steele some credit for because he's talked about wanting to do that and everyone is like, okay, after the last two years, you need to prove it to us now because you've been slowing everything down and he had to do it. We, we said that last year that the roster dictated he had to play that way. But the thing is, now that he had a different roster, he had to prove he would be willing to play a different way, especially against a team like Marquette who wants to get into a shootout with you and doesn't really want to play defense. Um, so, I mean, Brian, I think Travis has done a pretty good job of not slowing things down and letting his guys just play and do what they do. Yeah, I mean, as when we did the preseason pod, um, I think, well, certainly I, I can't remember what you said, Rick. It was like, do you think Travis Steele cannot throw up the stop sign every time the uh, ball gets dribbled across half court? And to put it mildly, I was skeptical. Well, he's a third. He, he's who was the there was like an old man third base coach for the Reds like five or six years ago who just kept sending everyone home, was giving them. The was windmill? it Dale Swaim? I don't think it was Swaim. It was somebody, though. Some old man. Yeah, I, I know what you're just, talking about. He was just a windmill sending everybody home. And that's what Steele is right now. He's just a windmill saying, go, go, go. And I didn't I didn't think he had – I didn't. have improved from 31% from three overall last year to 42% this year. It, it's clearly they've been doing better shooting drills. They're probably shooting when they're tired. That kind of says it all, doesn't it? Rick, let's talk about the Marquette game. I mean, obviously the I thought we were. Golden Eagles. <laughs> well, the the specifics <laughs> of the Marquette game. Uh, Marquette got off to a lead early in the game, and um, I think they built it up to nine maybe was their biggest lead. It was um, nine on a few occasions. What were you seeing that – what were you seeing during that period of time that was allowing Marquette to score so easily? Uh, Zach Fremantle pretty frequently. Um, I mean, really inside, they were just doing what a lot of teams have done to Xavier inside. And I think there's two things going on there. One, Zach Fremantle's offense is advanced at a much greater rate than his defense has. Uh, two, Xavier doesn't have a lot of size and toughness in general inside. Um, and then three, I think there's, whether it's Xavier's coaching staff directing him this way a little bit in the offseason or just Zach picking up on his own, he's more valuable on the court than he is on the bench with foul trouble. So he's clearly avoiding fouls. I mean, that's, there's just tons of, I don't think he's being told to avoid fouls. I just think I, he, I don't think he is either, but I think, defense. well, but I mean, very clearly there are opportunities where he just 
fouls out of the way. It's like, eh, I'm not going to contest that. So, I mean, he's making some business decisions on the court, and I think it's smart. I think it's the right thing for him to do, quite honestly. Now, he needs to find a way to get tougher and offer a little more resistance, maybe do some of his work early so he's not pinned underneath the, the basket and left to his only resort is to try to block a shot. You know, I mean, there are other things he can do without putting himself at risk for a foul every time. But I think he's just trying to figure all that stuff out as a sophomore who's really good offensively, but not as good defensively. And he's not getting a ton of help. Like Jason Carter is good on the perimeter, but it's not like he's a weak side shot blocker. who's going to clean up some of your mistakes. If you're Zach Freeman. Yeah. I also at the end of the day, if, if a team's just making jump hook after jump hook on you, even the best in the world at the NBA, that's a 50% shot. You'll you'll eat those. You don't really care. Yeah, but and, I mean, come on. It's I mean, it's Chris Vote is getting him in UC game early. I mean, like it's it's a recurring theme here with Fremantle. No, but I'm speaking specifically to this game and how Marquette got up nine, which was the question. So obviously, after that first passage of play, Xavier fought back. They uh, they were down uh, one point, I believe, at halftime. Uh, then the second half, really, until probably the last four minute war was really a cat and mouse game. Neither team could get too much clearance, although it seemed like Xavier had the lead most of the time in the second half. Um, I guess I want to ask you guys about the offense in this game because uh, uh, Xavier obviously was pretty effective. I mean, they averaged 1.32 points per possession. They were efficient. They made 54% of their threes. And from what I saw, most of those were clean looks. Um, what, what is Xavier doing offensively this year? Can you just kind of walk us through what the strategy is and maybe compare that to the last good Xavier offensive teams, the, uh, the, the period of Blewett and Mercura, and maybe how it, how it differs or is similar? I would say it's really different, honestly. Because, like, would the, the guys you have making threes now, they're more moving and, and you know, open and – Whereas like Trayvon, even though you didn't necessarily like isolate him, like he was a spot up guy. Makura um, kind of did his weird thing and he's just not as good a shooter as people think he was. Like Kaiser Gates was a spot up guy. He didn't shoot on the move at all. This team, it's very different. You got, you know, Kunkel coming off screens. You got Kiki Tandy coming off screens, Nate Johnson coming off screens. So it's a lot more flow, a lot more motion than maybe they had in the past with with that blue at Makura Gates type of team where, you know, it was all about and kick or, you know, run a set play to get a guy a shot. This is more free flowing and very different. Well, and I think Chris Max off, first of all, they're just running a different offensive system in general. Um, yeah. But I think Chris Max systems always had an element of the post there, right? I mean, you were always going to play, not necessarily through the post, but use the post um, in a lot of different ways. With this offensive system right now, Travis Steele has basically said, like, we don't have a post except for when Zach Freeman decides he wants to take advantage of someone one-on-one -on -one and post up. Like, other than that, we're going to spread it out and just create as much open room as we can in that lane. And I, I wrote about this after the Marquette game that I think you've seen – where the last two years was holding Paul Scruggs back was that. I mean, just that oh there was no room for him to get into that mid-range, into that lane area where he's so good in tight spaces and using his big body and his length to finish from anywhere to at the rim to eight to 10 feet. 
And like he's just added so much to his game too. All those little turnaround pivot moves and things he's doing where he lands on a jump stop and you know pump fakes or whatever. It just he he's he's really been great. And I think that this system has been probably the the most beneficial for him out of anyone on the team I, right now. I was going to say that, and I, I was going to ask you guys. I mean, Scruggs obviously with another tremendous game uh, against Marquette, twenty nine points. He was uh, six of eleven from two, five of eight from three, um, six assists four rebounds just was, and really just once again was the best player on the court. Um, coming into the season, if you just said, you know, what Scruggs is upside should have mentioned he was also conference player of the week this week. Um, if, if you'd asked me like Scruggs hits the, hits the top of his potential or close to the top of his potential, what's it look like? I think I would have said he's going to be a really good defender. He's going to be the guy you give the ball and can get you a basket from time to time. But I would not, I, I honestly did not think that he was he could be this kind of offensive ball dominant alpha the way he's been in these last three games Xavier's played against high major opposition. So I ask you guys, is this something that you saw coming or is this a surprise to you as well? I mean, I certainly didn't see seven assists a game and like four to one assists a turnover. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. Never saw that coming in a million years. Um, I thought he'd be, you know, kind of 14, five and five, just kind of what he is. And there's still a chance that's what he ends up, but he's been a different player this year. He's more efficient in everything he does. He not having Najee Marshall is the best thing for him. They're no longer in a competition to see who can see, you know, how many dribbles it takes to get rid of the air pressure in the ball and not worried about once you pass it, you're never getting it back. So, I mean, it, it's just, it fits Paul much better. And he's taken full advantage of it, and he's been fantastic. For me, I, I never foresaw that he could change his mindset as like a playmaker, passer, and decision maker. I thought he was still going to be rough around the edges in terms of he's just going to be a guy that throws the ball away or loses his dribble occasionally and ends up with you know three to five turnovers all the time. And while he'll make some plays for you, he's not like an elite assist guy, setup guy. But I mean, his unselfishness has been ridiculous, even as well as he's scoring right now. Some of the drives just in the Marquette game where he's got like a a one-on-one situation in transition and maybe another defender's kind of closing in and he decides, Oh, Nate Johnson's on the wing. I'm going to spray it out to him like eyes on the back of his head type deal. That stuff is things I don't think he's seen in the past, or at least like Brian said, maybe it was just more of a thing as hell. This is my only opportunity to score because the next six possessions, Najee's going to jack one up, you know, and we're going to throw the ball into Tyreek. So maybe he's just feeling like I'm always going to get the ball back. I'm always going to be the focal point. So he's, he's more apt to share it. I don't know, but that's been the biggest difference to me is the way he is playing as a decision maker and playmaker for his teammates and not turning the ball over at all. What did you guys see uh, in the second half? Xavier obviously made a back and uh, actually won the game. It it felt like the big, it felt like uh, for me, as I watched it, that the big passage of play came before the last TV timeout um, sort of in that period where Xavier went on a little run. Uh, I'm pulling up the play-by-play so I get the timestamp right. Basically, from about the the nine-minute mark through to the uh, to about the five-minute mark, where Xavier went from down a point to up eight. That was a period that featured a couple threes uh, from Nate Johnson, also from uh, from Jason Carter, top of the key to put them up eight. 
What what did you guys see that pushed Xavier over the top in this game? This is where they remind me of the 2018 team because I don't think they did anything different. Like I, I think they just stick to the process. They don't panic at all. They just believe we're going to start hitting threes. We'll keep moving the ball. We'll keep playing the way we are. And lo and behold, they go seven of 10 from three in the second half. Nate Johnson starts feeling it. You know, Paul Kunkel. Kunkel was great in the second half. He was a big part of that, obviously. But to me, that's the big thing is they are just, at all times, they have a ton of confidence and think the next shot is the one that sparks a 15-0 run. What was interesting to me is Carter shot that three so, probably the most confident shot he's taken all year. Yeah. And it was cash. And then he gets fouled like a minute later, and he missed by four feet on both free throws. <laughs> he should have stepped back and taken the free throws from the very top of the circle, like just with his tiptoes inside the inside the arc. It was bizarre. It was like, how could you have been so confident with that? And then on your free throws, look like you wanted nothing to do with them. And at that point, the game wasn't really all that close. It was like up six or something. And, right. You know, wasn't yeah, like that pressure packed free throws. We don't want to don't want to ride him too hard, but Jason Carter had a bit of a nightmarish last minute of that game, um, missing four, missing four free throws and then fouling uh, Kobe McEwen on Marquette's last possession, uh, leading to a four point play that tied the game briefly. Um, Do you guys think it was a foul? I didn't. I, I thought it was. It, it looked to me like he hit his arm. I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think I know I think there was some talk that he that. McEwen embellished it and kind of threw himself down. Certainly no Xavier player wearing number five has ever done that. Um, But, uh, but it looked like a foul to me. Like I think Carter hit his arm and I think McEwen threw out his leg and kicked, you know, like it is what it is. Yeah. He definitely tried Uh, to sell it, but it, it, well, I think it was a foul. And if nothing else, it's, I'm not even talking about selling. I'm talking, you know, like he, he did the Reggie Miller kind of leg out thing. Yeah. Um, here's the thing. Kobe McEwen should transfer to Xavier because he does not miss in the Centos Center. Well, how do you know Travis just doesn't have him stashed at Marquette so he can bring him here next year when there's a scholarship open? People forget. We know that happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, Like, that dude is ridiculous in the Centos Center. Like One of the things we didn't mention during the Kunkel conversation is do you think the fact that he is eligible to play this year and isn't doing a sit-out year will affect his wanting to leave and go to UC? You, you you can't – it's 2020, man. You, you can't assume anything. That yeah. is the most galaxy-brained idiot message board take I think I've ever come across in my entire life. I love it so much. Yeah, I don't even care. Like, it's one of the few ones that hasn't run out yet. It's still funny to me when people bring it up on the board. Usually that stuff is annoying really quickly, but, like, like the things they do with the two, jumping off two feet and stuff, like – I don't get it at all. Not funny at all. I still don't even understand it. Me neither. Uh, it was a, it was, it was uh, some message board blowhard back when Romain Sato was at Xavier complained that he couldn't jump or he couldn't I, jump off one foot or I got to remember what it was, but it yeah. dates back many, many, many years. I've been explained. It's been explained to me multiple times. It still never is like, Oh yeah, that's something that should have lasted this long and still been funny. Then like something about watermelons or something. I, I get so confused. Yeah, that was that's lore again from a long, long time ago. But uh, but yeah. So, but I do uh, like the Kunkel's gonna gonna sit out year at Xavier and then transfer to UC idea. That was a brilliant concept. That if only John Brandon's staff would have thought of, uh, they might have an infusion of talent coming in next year. Um, the backdrop of this Marquette game, uh, as you guys know, uh, is that Dwan Odom uh, 
as well, Xavier was on pause due to a COVID positive, and then Dwan Odom was unavailable for the Marquette game. Which I, I'd know. say we could we could safely say he tested positive. I'm just saying, Snow. I'm not a. I'm a. I'm. I'm just reporting the facts. I'm not a. I'm not a big connect the dots guy. Um, and I thought that that. And I thought there were two specific ways where that showed out. First of all, I thought Xavier looked tired as hell the last four minutes of the game, especially on the defensive end. Saw a lot of grabby fouls, saw a lot of really hectic defense with guys kind of lurching around the court at the last second. Uh, I, I, I thought the, the, I thought Travis did a nice job of using his timeouts. I don't know if it was on purpose. I think it was dictated by the game, but he got guys a lot more rest down the stretch. And then I also thought Xavier just really struggled to get the ball in bounds and up the court against Marquette's press. Once Marquette, uh, uh, started to pressure the ball. It led to obviously Carter going to the line a couple times where Odom might've been at the line under other circumstances. So I thought those were the only two places where I thought it really hurt X. I don't know what you guys thought of that. Uh, I thought it hurt them defensively. One's much better at pressuring the ball than any other guard they have. So I thought it hurt them defensively. And then also like, I think that's part of the reason the defense sucked is like you take seven days off you have a non-contact practice and then you, you don't want to go full crazy contact the day before a game. Like, it's just hard to continue your defense in that way. And it, it's just, it's, you're not going to be in sync defensively when you take a week off. It, it's just what it is. And, and I think you saw that. So, you know, I think part of you, you saw the missing Dewan does hurt defensively. And then just the nature of 2020, uh, when teams come back from a from a week off from a week two week vacation, odds are their defense isn't going to be fantastic. Well, I, first of all, I fully agree with what Snow's saying in terms of week off will impact you and all that stuff. But let's have a conversation about the defense then, because Snow, you, you sound like you think it was just a blip on the radar, and this team will be very good defensively. Not necessarily. Okay, I, I, see, because I think that's going to be a weakness all year. I don't think they're going to get a lot better. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think they're a great defensive team. Um, but I do think. If you're Xavier, right, and you're saying, okay, we're giving up post-touch, post-move, where we're staying between the player and the basket buckets, and then somewhat contested mid-range jumpers, you're going to live with that. You're going to. Like, that's what you want teams to take. Those are low-percentage shots, relatively speaking. Um, and I thought Marquette, to their credit, did a good job of making a lot of those. Now, that's Xavier was fantastic. They were not by any stretch of the imagination. But, um, you know, it's just kind of the reality of, of, a, of a situation is Marquette did a good job of making shots that Xavier wanted them to take. And then Xavier's defense also was below average, partly because they're not a great defensive team and partly because they had a seven-day vacation. I mean, expecting their defense to be in sync after a seven-day vacation is, is honestly unreasonable. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree with that. And I didn't even think their defense was that bad in the Marquette game overall. Um, and really, the one thing I was surprised with is Marquette is a team that can get to you on the offensive boards. And uh, it was eight to eight in second chance points, which I thought was a huge key to Xavier winning that game. Like I expected Marquette to have an advantage there. And had they had much of an advantage at all, it might have been the difference in the game. So the fact that, you know, Brian Griffin gave him a lift there. Uh, I mentioned in my write up that I thought even, even though Ben Stanley struggled in his brief, Stint on the court. He played three minutes in the first half, three minutes in the second half. 
uh, didn't look very good. The one thing he did show is he had two rebounds, and one of them was one where he kind of like bullied Dawson Garcia underneath the rim, then went up and, and grabbed the rebound at rim level. And I, I thought that was a really positive sign because Xavier needs help with that. It's something clearly physically he looks like he could give them, and yet it's something he really didn't do much of much at all of uh, at Hampton. So to, to me, there were definitely some positives from the, the defensive play and the rebounding in the Marquette game, but I kind of feel like this is going to be a team where it's – it's a little bit of uh, you, you plug one hole and a new one springs up defensively. You know, one night it's you get killed on the offensive glass. The next night it's the team makes all the shots that you wanted them to take. And then the next night, you know, you get beat in the post or whatever. So I just don't think this team is going to be great defensively overall. No, I mean, and at the end of the day, if you could be great offensively or great defensively, I'll be great offensively any day of the week. Absolutely. Well, one hundred percent, and that's—I mean, again, comparing it to the two thousand eighteen team, it's not a perfect comparison, but it's why it reminds me of that. It feels very much like what Steele and Mac kind of had rolling there at, at the end, um, be, before the changeover. It feels like we're kind of back to that, and I think most fans would agree that that is much preferable compared to what they watched the last two years. Even had the team the last two years been more successful with their win loss record, it's just it's tougher to watch that style of basketball. And take take all that out of the equation. At the end of the day good offense beats good defense just does mm-hmm. yeah xavier did jump into the ap poll this week they jumped up to 22 um so that's uh that's the first time xavier's been ranked in what seems like a very long time um i'm sure it's probably not they probably were 25th at some point last year but uh it feels like yeah, i think they cracked it last year probably after the orlando or well charleston trip would be my guess but 2020 has been 74 years long, so I can't be expected to remember that far back. They obviously don't get much of a break. The uh, conference schedule is underway before Christmas, and uh, they'll play at Creighton on Wednesday, one of the tougher places in the league to play, albeit this time it won't be in front of 17,000 people. Uh, Creighton, a really good team. Um, What do you guys make of that matchup? Take the over. Yeah. (laughs) I don't bet on sports. Take the over. Well, we, we were talking about Travis Steele being good about letting his team run and, and play free on offense. Uh, do you think he'll have the confidence to do it in this one, Brian, at Creighton? And I quote, well, I'm going to exclude a word here. I ain't slowing it down, end quote. Well, fair enough. I mean, that's going to be an enjoyable game to watch regardless of what happens, I think, if those two teams are going to trade three-point shots with each other. Like, what do you think a reasonable over-under would be, 160? That's, I think you'd need to have it up around there. I mean, interestingly, I'm looking at Ken Palm right now. He has it 79, 73 Creighton. So, I mean, you're talking about what, 152? Yeah, I'd feel real good about taking that low. Although, although Creighton wasn't exactly scoring for fun in their last game, which which was an overtime win at UConn that they they came from pretty much nowhere and beat James Bonite, who scored 6,000 points in that game. So, uh, I mean, they've, uh, that, that, that was a pretty impressive win for, uh, for Creighton. I don't know how Ken Palm does that, but like if you look at like Xavier's offense, I think it's like top 25 in the country in terms of tempo. Creighton's kind of the same way. Uh, it's Xavier's, just actually, Xavier's actually 70th right now. In offensive tempo? Yeah. They, they, I mean, really, they only had 66 possessions in the Marquette game, even though they scored 91. And Creighton is 105th. 
So this, despite the fact that they're two of the top 12 offensive efficiency teams, uh, at least in terms of possessions per game, it hasn't been that ridiculous. Oh, but So Creighton's 35th in offensive tempo. Yeah, and Xavier's 70th. Oh, you're right. I'm looking at the wrong thing. Yeah, Xavier's a little – I thought – I mean, it's 15.9 to 15.4. It's just teams take forever to score against them. Yes, that makes sense. Um, which is why I tend to think it's going to be, you know, just a track meet. Well, and to a certain extent, both of them have um, – I mean, they play faster, but they they kind of have the Villanova thing going on where it's it's not that they're flying up the court in transition trying to score as quick as they can. They get moving quickly, pass the ball around three or four times quickly, have the defense moving quickly, and then get a shot up. But, I mean, that still could take, you know, half a shot clock or more. So, um, yeah. It's not like they're they're just everything's a fast break offense or they're full court pressing or anything like that. But either way, two really good offenses and two teams that once they get into the heat of playing each other, I have a feeling aren't going to care too much about getting stops. So, yeah, defense. Uh, the, the the interesting thing was how this sets up afterwards. I mean, you have everyone talked about how tough a stretch it was to open with Marquette, Creighton, uh, Seton Hall, and Villanova. But now that you got the Marquette win out of the way at home, I mean, yeah, you go to Creighton at Creighton, that's going to be a tough win no matter which way you slice it. But then you're home for four straight games, and we probably can't assume that all four of those games get played as they're scheduled. But, I mean, now that they already got the one win under their belt, it's not unreasonable to think that uh, this this first stretch of six games could go pretty well for the Musketeers. I mean, 500 or better is, is well within their reach now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Seton Hall's not blowing anybody away. St. John sure as heck isn't. Providence isn't blowing anybody or you know, clearly Villanova, they have a tendency to win games against Xavier. I don't know. People forget that, but yeah, it can set up good. And at the end of the day, I'm pretty sure you're going to play every team in the big East, you know, close to twice. <laughs> you know, does it really matter what order you play? Them? I have a question about the big East schedule for you, Brian. Uh, and Dan, if you want to weigh in too, that's fine. Cause I don't know that anyone really has a good answer for it, but Steele said today in his press conference previewing the Creighton game that after the Creighton game, the Big East has decided it's okay. They're going to allow kids to go home for the holidays if they want. And Xavier's going to let their players travel back home. Do you think that's a sign that we're possibly moving towards a a bubble setting? Brian, I know you hate the term, whatever you want to call it, a, a situation where they're going to put all the teams in two spots and try to get in as many games as they can over like a two week period uh, while students are off campus, do you think that's what we're heading towards and that might be a sign or is it reading way too much into it? I think that's reading too much into it. I don't think they want to do it. They're going to do it if they have to. And like right now, and that's just right now, I mean, we're recording this at 830 right now on Monday night as Kevin Huber's about to punt a football. Every team in the Big East is able to play. And as long as that's the case, they're not going to some contrived control environment. And when it comes down to, I think is, you know, they're going to say, yeah, if you guys want to go home and, but we think it would be a really good idea if you don't. And we'll see what happens. Right. I mean, I think Brian, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I mean, until there is another situation where we have uh, multiple teams going on pause, multiple teams unable to play for an extended period of time. There's not really a need to try to do a, uh, 
a cluster or a bubble or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I'm sure, I think we know that there have been contingency plans talked about uh, with the possibility of doing those things. And I think uh, if it had, if it, if, if it comes to it, I think the conference and the teams will be in a position yeah. to do that. But as of right now, it doesn't seem like, and I said, you know, knock on wood, but it doesn't seem like any of the teams in the conference are going to struggle to get to 13 games with the exception of DePaul. Um, even if there is another pause down the road at some point. Yeah. I mean, the quarantine being changed to seven games really has been a game changer in that regard. If you look at it since the CDC changed the regulation, it's been like every day there's been less teams on whatever you want to call it on shutdown. And especially when it comes to like power conference teams, it's actually a really low number right now. So now no, the holidays, not- now that there's a lot of thought, there's a lot of belief that, that the Christmas holiday is is a, it's a potential time for a re flare up. I mean, we saw it after Thanksgiving, certainly. So be honest about something right here, like three quarters of these kids have already had COVID. Well, that is also true. Like, and some of the ones that think they haven't probably have, because they simply weren't being tested when, um, like, it makes me wonder how many like college students have actually gotten COVID because like there's a couple big 10 teams that are at like 14 of 15. If you listen to the Yahoo college sports podcast, like they're going for the Fauci cup. Um, like it's all over the place. Max said 90%. Now Xavier's well below that right now that they know of, but these kids could have gotten it in April and May. And granted, we don't know what that means for future immunity and whatnot, but it's completely possible that especially with this particular peer group where, you know, the numbers show it doesn't, you, you're going to have more asymptomatic and more whatever that a lot of these kids have already gotten it and going home isn't going to cause any problem. Dan, do, uh, do you have anything else we need to get to in terms of Xavier future schedule guys on the team recruiting anything else you, uh, questions you got or thoughts? Well, let's talk about recruiting a little bit. I, I guess we're still in this situation where we can't, uh, where there's no visits going on and so forth. I'm sure that during the uh, Xavier shutdown, Travis Steele, in addition to bothering his wife, was probably bothering a lot of uh, high school kids. Snow, where I know you have uh, one crystal ball and of medium, a medium strength crystal ball. Uh, where do you think Xavier's focusing their efforts right now uh, at this point in the uh, in the high school season? First of all, a lot of kids aren't even playing, so that's kind of part of it. But they're watching games on film and overanalyzing everything as only Travis Steele can. So, you know, it's just kind of business as normal, just without going to games. It seems like point guard is their number one priority in this class. I don't know about all that. I, I just think they have a few point guards that they like. Um, and I just think – it's kind of what they want, you know, like they're still what the roster is going to be like. So I think it's kind of best player available no matter what at this point. Well, that is a good point. We should probably touch on that with the um, we kind of mentioned very briefly the the Ben Stanley, the decision that came down and Ben Stanley's eligibility. But um, 
with everyone essentially having a redshirt year this year, uh, how, do, how what are we feeling about the possibility of some of these guys that we anticipated leaving after this season coming back for another year? Well, Paul Scruggs will not be coming back. Clearly. Um, I think there's a good chance Brian Griffin comes back. Now it does not sound like Nate Johnson is of the mindset of coming back. I mean, unless Jason Carter feels the need to like get a PhD, like I don't see him coming back, but maybe he wants to, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, of the seniors, I, I would say probably the only realistic one right now is uh, Brian Griffin. Yeah. And I mean, Stanley and Kunkel, I know we've been asked about this a bunch of different times on the message board, on Twitter, things like that. Uh, everyone gets a free year this year. So this doesn't yeah. count against their eligibility. Kunkel and Stanley would both technically have two years to play if they want to after this season. For Kunkel, I think that's absolutely the plan. He planned to sit out this year and then play two more. So I think you can count on him for two more seasons if he doesn't go in the lottery next year uh, after his, his game winner gets out there on, on film. But uh, with Stanley, I think it's probably more up in the air whether he would play two more years or not. But definitely, yeah, I think his plans probably play one for this year. Yeah, so that's. But I mean, with all that depth you have and what you have on this team already, and kind of multiple guys at multiple spots and some versatility, there's not one position that it's like you have to have that in next year's recruiting class. So yeah, I mean, it's a lot. A lot of uh, just trying to see what you have and looking for the best players available right now in 2022. I mean, you know, you have a couple more front court pieces for 2021 and uh, Cesar Edwards and Elijah Tucker. By the way, Elijah Tucker's really damn good. I stand by my statement. There's no way they're going to be able to redshirt him. Well, that'll create a pretty significant log jam at that, uh, at the four and five spots next year, but maybe that's a, but uh, you know, that's a good problem to have. Yeah, no doubt. Better to have too many good players than not enough. We've seen enough of that. I think both of those guys fit perfectly with the style Xavier's playing this year, too. I mean, when you think about Fremantle and, and Carter and kind of why they went to this offensive style, it's because you have some face-up big men that like to play facing the rim and away from the basket with some skill. And both of those two guys look like their best attribute right now is the fact that they can step out and hit some shots and, and play with skill on offense. Yeah, I mean, they're both skilled dudes who can – who have some versatility and, and are, you know, fit the style. I mean, that's the thing is like, it's not just about getting good players. It's about getting good players who fit what you're looking for. And that, and I think Travis Steele has figured out what he wants in players and he's going to go after that type of player and get as many good ones as he can get and let the chips fall where they may. Well, so far, early returns this year are very positive as we start to see uh, what a Travis Steele Xavier basketball team looks like that he's handpicked. And so hopefully that'll continue into the future. I think that does it for this edition of the Dana Victory podcast, available on musketeerreport.com and all of your favorite streaming platforms. For the legend, Brian Snow and Dan, I'm Rick. Thanks for listening, everyone.